week in the church year, this week in which we celebrate Christ the King. It's, it's the last week before the, the church year begins again anew with the season of Advent. And it's a time in which we want to reflect on what does this mean when we say Christ is King and why does that matter? But I think it's only right that before we uh, take a look at that together that we allow God to prepare our hearts and our minds for the message that he has for us. So would you please bow your heads and pray with me? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you are indeed king over all creation. And so we give you thanks. And we confess, Lord, that oftentimes we don't approach you as king. Oftentimes we don't reflect on how amazing that message is. And so this morning as we look at it anew, we ask, Lord, that you would give us open hearts and minds to receive the message that you have for us. And Lord, I pray that the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O God, who is indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So this Sunday, we proclaim it. We've been singing it in our hymns. We've been talking about how Christ is the king. But I think for us as Americans, we have a hard time with this idea of king. Uh, We have a hard time with this idea of monarchy. I mean, our entire country was like founded on the fact that we just rejected a king. We just rejected monarchy. And I find that while we like to talk about Jesus in a lot of different ways, oftentimes the word king isn't on our lips. And, and I think part of the reason why is, again, because of our history. I think it's just because of some of our cultural distance as well. In fact, when you think about king nowadays, uh, probably a lot of different images come to mind. One of which is uh, this image of the very popular Netflix show, The Crown. I don't know how many of you have watched this show. I know that my wife and I love it. Uh, This is one of those shows that we have been known to binge watch, I will confess. Um, But the, but the, the... The show The Crown follows the story of Elizabeth II as she uh, suddenly finds herself uh, serving as queen over her nation at a very young age uh, when her father passes away. And uh, the whole first season really follows her. She's wrestling with stepping into that role. And there's a scene in that first season that is particularly powerful. When she, she knows that uh, her coronation is coming, she's looking at the various challenges that face her country, and she's wrestling with what it means for her to be queen in that situation and, and knowing what to do. So she decides to go and talk with her grandmother. And it's during that uh, conversation with her grandmother that uh, her grandmother says something uh, particularly shocking. And and I wanted you not to just hear it from me, but actually get a chance to, to see this scene for yourselves. So watch this. It doesn't feel right, as head of state, to do nothing. It is exactly right. Is it? But surely doing nothing is no job at all. To do nothing is the hardest job of all, and it will take every ounce of energy that you have. To be impartial is not natural, not human. People will always want you to smile or agree or frown, and the minute you do, you will have declared a position, a point of view, and that is the one thing as sovereign that you are not entitled to do. The less you do, the less you say, or agree, or smile... Or think, or feel, or breathe, or exist... The better. This young queen, stepping into her role as sovereign, is basically told the only thing that people expect you to do is to do nothing. 
And that's because as her, in her role as queen, that's all she is supposed to be is a figurehead, nothing more. A symbol of national unity, but never comment on politics, never get involved in the struggles of her nation, never really engage in the day-to-day struggles of her people. That is the role that she is called to inhabit. The reason I show us this clip is because I think for many of us, that's what we've made Jesus. We've made Jesus a symbol. We made him something that we look to to give us comfort and a sense of satisfaction or peace, but someone who's uh, largely aloof and doesn't have a lot to do with our day-to-day lives. In fact, that's one of the things that I wrestled with as a non-Christian is how many Christians would say that they believed in Jesus, that Jesus is God, but the impact that Jesus seemed to have on their everyday lives was minimal. And one of my questions was, great, Jesus says, God, why does that matter? What difference does it make? And I think it's because for many of us, we have a lot of our own ideas of who Jesus should be. We each have kind of our own favorite Jesus. Uh, Maybe your favorite Jesus is that one that you love to hang over your mantelpiece. Uh, This is a a very famous portrait of Jesus. A friend of mine calls this the bearded lady Jesus. And maybe you like this Jesus because Jesus is glowing and serene, but kind of aloof. Others of us, we prefer a more ethereal Jesus, the spooky Jesus, right? The one who glows and is otherworldly, has power, but not really relatable. Some of us, that's a little bit too unrelatable. Our our preference is uh, Buddy Jesus. We really love Buddy Jesus. Because Buddy Jesus is here to be your friend and to just hang out with you, dude. That's what Buddy Jesus is here for. Others of us, we prefer uh, Sunday school Jesus. This is the Jesus, meek and mild. The one who's always gentle, always comforting, gives us those warm fuzzies inside when things are tough, and is there always to give us a hug and hear a prayer, but never says anything difficult. There are others in the church, and also in our culture, actually, who really like hippie Jesus. You know hippie Jesus. Jesus this is the Jesus that just loves everybody. Okay, he's the one, everybody, it's all just about love and peace, man. This is the hippie Jesus that I think our culture loves to embrace. Others of us, we actually prefer the uh, radical rabbi Jesus. This is the Jesus who is just a great moral teacher, right? He goes around dispensing little nuggets of wisdom, and that's what he's there for, and that's why we love to buy those, like, uh, 52-week devotionals that just have a snippet of what he has to say. Not, not all of it, just the stuff that's relevant for me right now. But others of us, that, that's not radical enough. What we want is we want, like, the rebel Jesus, right? We love that Jesus who goes into the temple and flips over tables just to stick it to the man. We love that Jesus who's a little bit edgy, the one who pokes at good Christians because he's really edgy and really frustrated a lot of the time. Each one of these, we have have our own mind of who Jesus should be, right? Now, I don't know which of those Jesus you tend to lean toward or which one is your preferred, but how many of us actually stop to think about Jesus as king? What would change if he was? You see, the earliest confession of the Christian church, long before the Nicene Creed, long before the Apostles' Creed were ever written, the earliest confession that we have of the church was that Jesus is Lord. And that word, Lord, in the Greek is actually a political word. It is a politically charged term. Because it was used often in those days in reference to someone else. It was used in reference to Caesar. Caesar, uh, Because the basic confession of the Roman Empire is that Caesar is Lord. 
And what that meant is that he was not aloof. He was not just some sort of figurehead. His will dominated absolutely everything about life in the Roman Empire. He was the one who set laws, administered taxes, appointed judges, raised up generals, commissioned armies, conquered nations, and ruled every aspect of his people's lives. We see the might of Caesar in the Gospel of Luke when Caesar, just out of a desire to find out how many people live in his kingdom, commissions a census, one that stretches all the way from the western shores of Spain to the northernmost reaches of Africa, all the way around the Mediterranean world. This was the might that Caesar wielded as Lord. And the thing that the Christians dared to confess was no, he's not. The earliest confession of the church was, while Caesar may be emperor, only Jesus is Lord. Only Jesus rules over all creation. His kingdom is a kingdom that has no end, that is from everlasting to everlasting. His kingdom is one whose laws and principles and ethics and ways of being are meant to govern every aspect of human life. And it is his kingdom that we all live under, whether we recognize it or not. See, what's incredible about the Christians proclaiming this is not only were they proclaiming that Caesar is not Lord and Jesus is Lord, but that this also picks up on an Old Testament theme. You see, in the Old Testament, God's people often referred to God with the name Yahweh Adunenu. Yahweh Adonainu, that was God, that was Yahweh is our Lord. Yahweh is our King. And so when the early Christians confessed that Jesus is Lord, what they were doing is they were identifying Jesus with the great I am. With the creator God who created all things that we see. That he wields that kind of might, that kind of power, that kind of authority. This is not a God that we simply have a casual relationship with. He doesn't fit easily into those preferred pictures that we often ascribe to him of just a buddy or a friend or a cool dude with some nice tidbits of thought to be unwrapped when they fit our need. No, what they were saying was he is the almighty who created all things, who sustains all things, who rules over all things. And as such, this impacts everything about how we live. This is the reason those early Christians said we cannot bow the knee to Caesar because our knees are bow, uh, will bow only to the one who truly rules over everything. How would that change how we live? If we were to truly confess Jesus is king, Jesus is the Lord. You see, I think that part of the reason that we don't confess that Jesus is king is because we don't understand that he's king. But I think the other reason that we don't confess him as king is because we do understand what king means and that terrifies us. If Jesus is Lord, it means that I am not. If Jesus is king, it means that I don't get to sit on my own throne. It means that I need, that my life is meant to be subject to him in all things, all circumstances. And it's hard for us to give up that freedom and that control. We wonder what kind of a king would Jesus be if I were to truly to give him reign and authority over my entire life. Which is why this Sunday is so important. Because this Sunday 
we look at what it means that Jesus is king, what kind of king he is, what kind of kingdom he inaugurates and will ultimately bring to fulfillment. And to do that, I think we have to look at the story of our world. Because the reality is, is that we live in a world that is longing for a good king. When we turn on the news, what do we see? We see things like violence and broken relationships. We see injustice, disease, natural disasters, and death. One of the things that I find funny is that even when I'm talking to agnostics or atheists, when they turn on the news and they see things like genocide and war, they start saying some very puzzling things for people who don't believe in God. They start to say things like, this isn't right. This isn't the way it's supposed to be. And quite honestly, as Christians, we would agree with them. This is not the way the world is supposed to be. We have a world that is crying out for a good king. How did we get here? The answer is, when we look at our story, what the Bible tells us is that our world was originally created by a good king. That God, in his love and and in his generosity, made everything that we see. And he created a world that was beautiful and harmonious and perfect. A world that didn't have things like disease and natural disasters and death. But more than that, he made human beings in his image. In his image to to, uh, reign alongside him, to to serve as stewards over his creation. We see this in the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1. When after making human beings, male and female in his image, what does he tell them? He says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. That is royal language. God is saying, you as my children are now called to reign beside me, to steward this world that I have made in ways that are reflective of my kingdom, reflective of my goodness and my love and my generosity. That was our original purpose. And when we lived in in right relationship with God and with each other, we lived in a world that had no broken relationships, no violence, no injustice. Because we lived in perfect harmony with the Lord who rules over all as his children in the kingdom that he had made. So what happened? The answer is we rebelled against our king. We turned our backs on him and we said we want to reign over this earth on our own terms. We would prefer our own crowns and our own thrones and our own kingdoms. We turned our back on God, and this is part of the reason why all these other things entered into the world. It was because of our pride and our arrogance that violence, injustice, and broken relationships uh, began to characterize human interactions and human communities. But it's also because we cut our world off from the author of life that we see that all of creation has gone haywire. We live in a world where now uh, we see cities that are destroyed by tsunamis and hurricanes. We see people whose bodies waste away because of disease. We encounter something that is unnatural according to God's created purposes, death itself. But all of these are symptoms. Symptoms of that deeper, broken relationship that we have with our king. And so the question becomes, what will our king do? He has every right and every authority to punish those who rebel against his kingdom. He has every right to just step back and say, fine, this is the way you want the world, you can have it. And let us reap the just desserts of our pride and our arrogance. To watch the world spiral downward. But what we see in this story is that our king is unlike any other king on the face of the planet because this king, rather than punishing and rather than rejecting, mounts a rescue mission. He enters into our world and he actually becomes one of us. He becomes one of his subjects. 
He walks alongside us, lives with us, ministers to us, talks to us, and teaches us. That's who Jesus is. He's the king who left his throne to enter into this world to rescue his rebellious people. And what's so beautiful about Jesus is every single thing that Jesus said and every single thing that Jesus did was simply him saying, this is what life lived under God's reign and authority actually looks like. Which is why when Jesus saw broken relationships, he spoke about and brought love. Why when there was injustice, Jesus preached about justice. Where there was disease, Jesus gave healing. Where there was violence, Jesus talked about peace. Where there were natural disasters, Jesus calmed the storm. And where there was death, Jesus raised people to life. I don't know if you've ever read the Gospels that way before, but keep this in mind. When Jesus began his ministry, he began it with the following words. He says, the time is at hand. The kingdom of God has come near. Turn and believe the good news. What he's essentially saying is he's saying, everything that I say and do is meant to paint a picture of what life restored to right relationship with God actually looks like. What life in God's kingdom is actually all about, that it is a kingdom that doesn't have broken relationships and disease, a kingdom that doesn't have violence and injustice, a kingdom in which even natural disasters are told to be quiet and the seas are told to be still. Every act of Jesus is to paint a picture for us of what it looks like to live once more as citizens of the kingdom of God under his gracious reign and rule. This is part of the reason people were so attracted to Jesus. It's part of the reason that people started to gather around him and, and wonder more about this kingdom, but it's also why people continued to fight against him. Because they understood that if there's a, ki if there, if there's a kingdom, that that means a king, and the king is not me. Because remember, all these things that Jesus is addressing, these are simply the symptoms of the deeper problem. And the question becomes, how will King Jesus deal with his rebellious people? How will he, on the one hand, show them mercy while also executing justice? Well, Jesus had an answer for that too because he actually paid the price on our behalf. He took the punishment that we as his rebellious people deserved by going to a cross and dying in our place. Our king dying for the citizens who rejected him. So that's why on the cross, as he hung there, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. But the story gets better. Because Jesus ultimately shows the ultimate power and authority by overcoming death itself. He rose again from the dead. And he says, see, now I have conquered your rebellion. I have conquered the consequences of sin and death. I have delivered you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And Jesus said, and one day I will return. And when I do, all the broken things of this world will be no more. I will bring my kingdom in its fullness. And all of creation from one corner of the earth to the other will be filled with nothing but the reign and rule of God. A reign that is characterized by love and healing, justice, wholeness, peace, and new life. He says, that is the kind of king that I am. But in the meantime, those of you who call me Lord have a job to do. And that is to go out into the world with the good news of the kingdom of God. 
to give this broken world that desperately needs a good ruler a glimpse of what it looks like to live in this kingdom once more. To where you see injustice bringing justice. To where you see violence bringing peace. To where you see broken relationships modeling forgiveness and love. And doing so as ambassadors of me and my kingdom. This is something that the early Christians understood. It's something that they lived out. We see it most clearly in Philippians chapter 2 where the Apostle Paul writing to his fellow Christians says this. He says, let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but had emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name. So that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the kind of king that Jesus is. He's the servant king. He's the one who emptied himself and was willing to be born amidst his subjects, born in poverty, born in humility, something that we're going to celebrate as we move through Advent and toward Christmas, the first coming of our king as our servant. The one who is willing to lay down his life to rescue us and set us free. And it's because he is that kind of king that we can lay our crowns at his feet. Because we see the lengths that he was willing to go to set us free. The love that it was so loving that he was willing to endure pain and death and rejection in order to welcome us back into his kingdom. It's that kind of love that he rules with and that he rules by. And he says, and you now, my people, you have a calling. And that is to give foretastes of that kingdom wherever you go. That as you go out into the world to proclaim that Christ is king and he is a king whose kingdom is not like the kingdoms of this world. But he is a king who comes to bring us the truth. The truth that he is the way, the truth, and the life. That if you desire healing and wholeness and purpose, you're only going to find it as a citizen of the kingdom that is from everlasting to everlasting. It's a beautiful proclamation and one that we dare not lose. It's part of the reason we celebrate Christ the King Sunday because it is this Sunday that we proclaim that Jesus is not only King, he's the servant King, he's the loving King, he's the self-sacrificing King, and he is the King who calls us not only to be a part of his kingdom, but sends us out as ambassadors of that kingdom into a world that desperately needs that good news. And so as we go into the Advent season, as we prepare for Christmas, I think it's good that we pause and we think about this. I think it's good that we be reminded of this. So that as we move through the Advent season, we are looking for ways in which we can bring foretaste of the kingdom. That as we stand between our king's first coming and his second coming, we would not be idle. We would not simply look to him as nothing more than a figurehead. But we would live lives that point people to the truth, the hope that we have that Jesus Christ indeed is king of kings and Lord of lords. And it's with that in mind that I want to pray. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks that you are king. 
that you are a king who rules over everything and that your desire is to bring the good news of that kingdom into our world, to heal what is broken, to redeem what has been stolen, to bring back from captivity those who have rebelled and to do so all at the price of your own life. Lord, you are the only king worthy of our worship. And we pray that we would live as people of your kingdom. That as we move into this Advent season, all that we say and do would point people to the hope that we have in you and that we would rejoice and proclaim that you are king. It is in your name that we pray. Amen.